Our scripture passage for this morning comes from the book of John, chapter 20, as we read verses 19 through 29. Hear now the word of God. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths upon our hearts this morning. Let's ask him to bless his word. Lord Jesus, we ask today that you, our risen Lord, sitting even now at the Father's right hand, would send your spirit to bless us, to help us hear your word, but even more so to be receptive to have hearts that are ready to believe what you say to us. Fill us with that hope that we might share it with others. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. This morning's passage is a beautiful and really intimate exploration of the aftermath of the resurrection of Jesus. You know, by this point in the narrative... Jesus has risen, he has appeared to Mary Magdalene, and, he, and she told them what she saw, she told them that she saw Jesus, and, and in this passage now, he appears to all of the apostles. Uh, but he appears in stages, right? First, first he appears to Mary, uh, then he appears to the ten, but how does he appear to the ten first? He does it by way of Mary's testimony, right? And then, separately, Jesus appears to Thomas, and and it's in this appearance to Thomas that we find something really, the word I use is intimate. I think it's personally challenging, but I also think what we see with Thomas is very relatable. Because Thomas displays for us, in bright technicolor, the challenge of faith. Thomas displays for us the personal struggle against unbelief. And so in this passage, at once, I think we find ourselves grimacing at, at Thomas. We, we find ourselves thinking, this is really weird and awkward that he said this. 
And it's really weird that John remembered it and decided to write it down for all of us to read, right? The most embarrassing moment of Thomas's life, and he's like, let's put it in scripture and make sure everybody knows about it. Um, and we can relate. We've all had those things where we've, we've had unbelief in our own lives and the ways that it's come out is not something that we want generation after generation after generation to remember and read on Sunday mornings during the worship service, for example. Um, someone who struggles with doubt and, and, and does so in a very public way. That's what Thomas is here in our, our passage and so in that respect, one of my favorite passages in the New Testament actually comes from the book of Jude. Now, the book, book of Jude doesn't have chapters, so it's just Jude, verse 22. But in that passage, Jude says this. He says that we should have mercy on those who doubt. He says we should have mercy on those who doubt. It is such a simple verse. But it is this reminder of it, that doubt may be a type of unbelief, but it's not something that we should despise when we see it in another person. Um, you, you, you have to have something in order to doubt it, right? Di doubt is a type of unbelief, but it isn't the same as unbelief, not entirely. So we don't judge when we see weak faith just barely holding on. That's what, that's what Thomas is here, right? We don't despise. Instead, Jude says we need to have mercy on the doubter. We need to care for the doubter and certainly not condemn the person with weak faith. Now, that doesn't mean we should feed doubt. This is something that I saw a great deal during my college years. It seemed like there were tons of Christian ministers and writers who were writing Christian books. And instead of answering people's doubts, it was almost like their whole ministry was centered around encouraging doubt and increasing doubt. I always found it very bizarre. And sure enough, the people who fed on those ministries seemed to, to a man, walk away from the faith after no time at all. And so the idea is not that we feed doubt. Uh, there is nothing virtuous about doubt. We shouldn't encourage it. We shouldn't desire it. But we should always work to answer our doubts. And we should work to answer the doubts of others. We want to see doubt shrink. We don't want to see it increase. And so because of this impulse of having mercy on those who doubt, I have another favorite passage that feels like a companion to this verse from the book of Jude. And, and that's in the book of Mark chapter 9 where Jesus is speaking to this father whose child is suffering. And the father of the child cries out those words, probably very familiar to many of you. He said, I believe, help my unbelief. Right? One of the implications of this man's prayer is that faith is not a static thing. It's not just there or it's not there. Instead, the idea is that sometimes faith is strong and sometimes faith is weak. Sometimes we have faith that can move mountains and sometimes we have, sometimes we have faith that we hope will be just enough to get us out of bed. But weak faith is a reality for many Christians. So how do we think about weak faith? How do we think about doubt? Especially when we confront it in our own hearts. Today's passage presents us with this hard moment in the life of Thomas, and he's presented with a testimony of who Jesus is, and instead of responding with admirable and ready trust, he responds with profound unbelief that Jesus personally addresses in his own way. How weird is it that eight days later Jesus shows up and Thomas is the guy he's the most interested in in the room? He walks right up to him and he addresses him. You know what Jesus is doing? He's actually doing what Jude talks about. Jesus has mercy on those who doubt, doesn't he? That's what he's doing for Thomas. He's having mercy 
on those who doubt. So, so to appreciate what happens, let's briefly look at what takes place in verse 19, where Jesus does appear to the apostles, and then he appears to Thomas. So let's look at this under two points, then. the two events where people see Jesus. We have the seeing of the ten, and then we have the seeing of Thomas. And let's see if Thomas can teach us something about the nature of faith, the, the place for evidence, and perhaps even God can teach us something about our own hearts. Uh, first, we have the seeing of the ten. This happens in verse 19. I'm going to read that verse again. It says, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. So, so you notice Jesus in this resurrection appearance here is coming at a moment where the disciples are especially fearful. And we know they're fearful because it tells us they've locked the doors. It tells us that they're afraid. It tells us why they're afraid, right? They are experiencing unbelief of their own, right? When Jesus comes to meet Thomas, he's going to be addressing a certain kind of unbelief. And here, what is he doing with the apostles? He's addressing a certain kind of unbelief, right? Because this fear comes from unbelief, right? We know Thomas has doubt. We know that Thomas has unbelief. Well, the disciples here have the same problem. And so as Jesus appears among them, he speaks what they need to hear. He gives Thomas what he needs to hear in just a moment, but he gives these guys what they need to hear. And what they need to hear in the midst of their fear, he gives them words of peace. And I want you to notice that he, he doesn't arrive like I would. Because if I were Jesus and I knew how these guys had reacted, and I knew that they were hiding in this room, I would not come with words of peace. I, because I am not a merciful person, would arrive with thunder and lightning. Right? I would be raging at them for their timidity. You've seen it all. You've heard it all. You've seen everything. Why are you doing this? Why are you hiding in this room like a bunch of cowards who have no hope? Right? And he doesn't do that. He doesn't flash forth in anger at them because they have shrunk back into hiding. Instead, he comes to them and he speaks words of peace and he speaks words of comfort. He comes to them in their weakness and he addresses their weakness and he does it with care and he does it with pastoral gentleness. That's the word for it, pastoral gentleness. He's treating them like sheep. He's not treating them like wolves. See, he has mercy on those who doubt. Their hearts are, are troubled and their hearts are tumultuous. And Jesus comes and he speaks to the state of their hearts, just as he's going to do with Thomas here. And what does he do? He says, peace be with you. He speaks words of peace. He speaks a pronouncement of peace, a desire for peace. You can imagine that if anybody, just anybody said that, it would be maybe empty. It might be an empty thing to hear that from just somebody but this is Jesus. Right? This is the, the one person whose absence left them in distress. Right? This is the one person who would be right to be angry with them. The very person who you can imagine the moment that they saw him, they are, their hearts maybe, even though they're joyful, there's a sense in which their hearts also sink because they know the unbelief that they're living in right now. Just how terrifying it would be to see him and wonder, what's he going to do? What's he going to say? What does he think of us right now, hiding in this room? The one person who actually can give them peace, and by that peace, he really means himself, and he comes and he gives himself to them, right? Peace is with them because he is with them. 
And he's there. He's, he's standing right there in front of them. And, and I just have to point this out. This is very important. When we talk about the resurrection, we are talking about a literal resurrection, right? The, the sight of the ten is significant. It's important. It's important historically. And it's important theologically because Jesus appears to them physically in a physical place, in a physical city, in a physical room, and in their physical presence. See, the, the light bounced off of him and into their eyes so that their brains interpreted that image and they saw what they saw. They saw the body. They saw the face. They saw the hands. They saw the wounds. They saw that he wasn't a phantom. He wasn't a vision. He wasn't a hallucination. It was really him. And he lets them touch him just in case they decide to tell themselves that perhaps we're seeing things again. Maybe someone made us something strange for our supper, right? So not only that, but he speaks these gentle words of peace to them. He shows them his hands and his side. Jesus is very explicitly and intentionally making sure they see the continuity between this man who is standing before them right now and the man they know was crucified three days earlier. He wants them to see this is the same person. He wants them to see that he was that crucified man whose side was pierced. He was the man who died, and now he is alive again. This thing that they, that they see produces something in their own hearts. It produces gladness, right? And, 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 and it produces a testimony for all Christians in subsequent generations, their, their testimony plays at least three important roles for Christians today. The first thing is this. His appearance confirms the resurrection as physical and historical. Uh, there are modern-day scholars who say, yes, we believe in a resurrection. We believe that he spiritually rose. We believe that Jesus rose in the hearts of the disciples, right? They turn the resurrection into a metaphor. Um, the Sadducees were a sort of competing party with the Pharisees, and in Jesus' day, the Sadducees denied there was any sort of resurrection. Here's what happens. The physical appearance of the risen Jesus is a definitive refutation of that belief, just for starters. Right? Jesus is raised up with a real physical body. He is not just spiritually raised or metaphorically raised. He is physically raised up with a physical body that could physically stand in an actual building on an actual physical floor. It held his weight. When he walked, the floor creaked underneath of him, right? Later, Jesus made a, a breakfast of fish for the disciples on a beach. He made the fire. He cooked the fish on it. There's no question this was more than a story and it is more than a metaphor. It was an actual, literal event that pressed itself upon their hearts and minds for the rest of their lives. Jesus' body was raised from the dead. He appeared alive after his death. Second, the resurrection means this for us. His appearance to the apostles means that when these men died, they died sealing the truth of the resurrection with their own blood. According to the historical record, all the disciples, except for the Apostle John, died a martyr's death. And even John suffered greatly. He experienced exile because of his testimony that he saw the resurrection. In other words, you know, it is one thing for a person who didn't see the resurrection to decide that he believes that it took place. Or for somebody to even say that, 
so they can gain something, to say something for, for personal gain. But the apostles, to a man, all testified that they saw him. And it, and it wasn't hearsay. They, they either saw him or they didn't see him. And they paid a personal and physical cost for their death. There was no worldly incentive for them to lie. So the fact that they saw Jesus risen after his death is of incredible significance. And third, I would just mention another implication of this. The fact that he was there meant that everything that he said about himself, all the teachings he had given them about him, that they were all actually true. All of the teachings of Scripture were true. The, the, the apostles saw him, a real person, really raised, really resurrected, really talking. Life himself raised up, peace himself standing in their midst. It is the sight of the ten. This is what they saw. So you have the sight of the apostles, which is, which is sensory, which is based on Jesus' actual physical, historical appearance in front of them all. But then you have... Secondly, this morning, you have Jesus' appearance to Thomas, which is, which is different in some respects, and which gives us an opportunity to reflect upon the nature of faith. Thomas hears their testimony. He hears what they say. They say, we have seen the Lord. They tell him that, those words, we, each of us, you know us. These men who never lied to him before, these men who love Thomas, these men who gain nothing from lying to him, and Thomas responds with skepticism. You can almost imagine how frustrated they have to be. You can imagine how frustrated the ten are now that they know. And they're telling him. And he said, no, not me. I won't believe this. Could you imagine how eager they must have been to persuade him? They probably just wanted to grab him by the shoulders and shake him, you know. And, and no matter what they say to him, he says, I have standards. He says, I have, I have my own rules for what it's going to take to persuade me. And he says, unless God fulfills those conditions and gives me what I demand, I will never believe. I've got to see him. I'm nobody's fool. I've got to touch him. I won't be fooled by you. I won't be fooled by anybody else. I need to make sure that the wounds are real. I need to, to examine them. I need to know. Now, I could imagine a version of this story where Thomas goes away sad. And where God chooses not to honor this demand. Right? God doesn't owe this to Thomas. Jesus doesn't have to do this. I love that Jesus makes him wait eight days. Just long. The longest week of his life. You can just imagine by day four, everybody just staring at him like, come on. Come on, you know. And he doesn't. He makes him wait. Thomas should believe his brothers. He knows these men are honest. He knows they're truthful, and yet he doesn't. And here's the thing. God doesn't owe him the thing that he's demanding. Right? The, the fact that Jesus still appears to Thomas is evidence that Jesus loves him in spite of his weakness. Jesus humors this man. He goes above and beyond what he owes to this man. When you read the Bible, do you ever find yourself wishing, I wish I could have seen this. Like, you probably have episodes in Scripture that you wish you could have been there for. Uh, I think for me, if you're, if you're leaving out the New Testament, I want to see the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. I want to see the fire come down. I want to see that moment. It's like my favorite moment. Um, uh, but do you ever, you ever find yourself thinking, you know, my faith wouldn't be so shaky 
if I could have been there. And in your heart and in your mind, maybe you start to accuse God and you think, Lord, why does faith have to be so hard for me? Why can't I just see what all these other people got to see? Well, this much is true, right? We all, we don't all get the same blessings. We don't all get the same sight. We don't all get the same evidence. We have always been dependent on those who came before us, haven't we? Uh, the disciples saw Jesus, but guess what? They never saw King David, right? The, the Israelites saw King David, but they never set their eyes on Moses. Uh, the people in Moses' time, they got to see the thunder and the lightning on Mount Sinai, but the people at Sinai never got to see Abraham. Abraham and his family saw amazing things, but they didn't stand in the aftermath of the ark as the waters receded. Or the people of Noah's day, maybe they saw the floodwaters come and go, but they, they didn't walk with God like Adam and Eve in the garden. Right? There's always something that we haven't seen. God's people have always had to live by some measure of faith, haven't they? There's always something that we haven't had to look to those before to hear their testimony. That's just the way it's always been. We've always had to hear those who came before us. Some had evidence staring them in the face. Some were commanded to touch. And it may seem fundamentally unfair that some people receive the sort of in-your-face evidence and presentations of the risen Lord, while some of us live on the testimony of the apostles. People throughout history have received differing presentations of God's truth and different quality of evidence. The, the, the Israelites saw God on the mountain. They were witnesses who saw there were witnesses who saw the fire consume the sacrifice on Mount Carmel as Elijah is, is calling upon God and doing battle with the prophets of Baal. The disciples saw the risen Jesus in person, and yet unbelief was still a struggle even for those who had all the evidence in the world. Direct evidence and even seeing with your own eyes has never proven sufficient in itself to change someone's heart. Judas spent three years with Jesus. Do you know the kind of things that he saw? Think of the children raised up. Think of the blind men seeing. Think of the healings. Think of the feeding of the thousands on the hillside. He walked with Jesus and was filled with unbelief. Right? The, the, the Israelites, the Israelites are led through the wilderness by God himself. And yet they still made idols and they still bowed down to them, right? Even, even the prophets of Baal, they saw fire come down and they didn't repent. Instead, they were destroyed, right? When Jesus tells the story of Lazarus, which we had in our reading this morning, one of the points that he makes in that story is if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. He's, he's talking about what it takes to make a person believe. Direct evidence, Jesus says, on its own will not change the heart if it isn't ready to see. Jesus gives a priority to the written word of God. You know, he says here, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, he's actually saying the best place you could possibly go to is God's word, right? He says there is a predisposition that affects how someone assesses the things that they see and what they read. And so if someone believes God, they will listen to God's word. And if someone doesn't believe God, if they witness something that militates against their 
pre-commitments, what are they going to do? They're going to find some way to continue in their unbelief. That's what Jesus is telling this man, right? That's what he's saying in the story. That's what Abraham is saying to this man in the story. We need to see this about ourselves. Jesus understands the human heart better than any of us. Our own biases, our own prejudices, they have an incredible impact on how we assess evidence as it is presented to us. Jesus is drawing attention to that reality here. So this is why Jesus says what he says to Thomas. It's why he shows his hands. It's why he shows his side, because he ought to believe in keeping with what has really happened. He's showing his hands and his feet because it turns out evidence is important and it is not irrelevant. Jesus, is, if it was irrelevant, he wouldn't show his hands and he wouldn't show his, his side. So, in other words, evidence matters. It carries a confirming function, right? We shouldn't believe against evidence. We should not believe things that we don't have a reason to believe. But we also shouldn't put ourselves and our own ideas of the universe so high that when God speaks or when his truth is staring us in the face, we search for a way to write it off. And evidence, arguments, witnesses, we should study them so that we can be ready to give, do exactly what scripture says. Scripture says that we should be ready to give a reason for the hope that's within us. We should be ready for that, to show that what God says does match up with reality. In fact, the believing heart sees that God defines reality. But here's the problem. If we try to build all of it on top of our own thinking and our own arguments, from a will, and apart from a willingness and an eagerness to believe God, when he speaks, all we will do is build our own self-centered version of reality that may be very close to the truth, but still with us and our thinking at the center. Instead, we have to remember the way God designed the world. How did he design it? He creates, he interprets the world, he speaks, he tells us what it's like, and then we think his thoughts after him, and we believe and follow his lead. That's the way God has designed this world to be understood. When we do that, we will see that reality and truth absolutely do line up with what God tells us. That means that when evidence is presented, when it's discovered, we're going to see that it lines up with God and it's going to line up with what he's already told us. Uh, I can give you some examples. In the last five years alone, there have been repeated archaeological discoveries in the Middle East that dovetail perfectly with the teachings of Scripture. They found the pool of Bethsaida. They have found the town of Gath, where David fled from Saul. They found the seal of King Jeroboam II. They have found the worship sites that the northern kingdom used during the time of Jeroboam. The list goes on. They continue to find things that they did not know existed before. Were those places unreal or false until we found them? Of course not. They were always there. They were always real. And even if the sands of time had completely washed them away, they still would have been true. Uh, just like God's word always told us, though, they were there. Finding them doesn't make God's word true. It complements the truths that God has already revealed to us in Scripture. So, so the point I'm making is, is that as we study history and as we find evidence, each turn of the archaeologist's spade unearths more and more historical witness to the truth of what God has already told us about himself and has already told us about his dealings with his people. 
So it'd be, it would be foolish for us to say that this evidence doesn't matter at all. But it's also foolish to have God speak truthfully to us time and time again to be shown the truthfulness and the reliability of God's word repeatedly, consistently, to hear him, him speak to us in his word, always telling us the truth, and yet still persist in refusing to believe it. See, this is where Thomas is such an exhibit for us, because think of this. Thomas had the books of Moses and the prophets telling him that the Christ would rise, right? He's seen the miracles. He's heard the testimonies of Jesus. He can be sure that Jesus is the Messiah. Thomas had the words of Jesus himself telling him, I will be put to death and on the third day rise again. He said that to him. Thomas had the words of his brothers, the apostles, telling him that Jesus had risen and they had seen him with their own eyes. They never lied to him. He knew they were trustworthy. Their their testimony lined up with the scripture. They lined up with Jesus' own words. And yet, what does he do? Contrary to all these eyewitnesses, the scriptures, Jesus himself, and the apostles, he still says, I won't believe the evidence I have. I won't believe the eyewitnesses. I need to see too. Unless I put my hands in the mark of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. You see what Thomas does? He he sets up his own standard. He makes his own rules for the faith, right? He says, I'll have faith, Lord, if you give me X, Y, and and Z. See, human, human beings have this tendency to overestimate our own fairness and our own wisdom, don't we? Let me... Set the standard, we say. Then when the question gets answered, we move the goalposts on what it's going to take to persuade us, don't we? Thomas was doubting. In fact, Thomas was unbelieving. He said, I will not believe until. So he's, he's not believing. I'm grateful for Thomas's sake that Jesus came to him in kindness and Jesus assuaged his, his doubting heart. Um, Calvin describes God as lisping to us, lisping to us the way a parent lisps to their little child, right? He, he's saying that he accommodates us, uh, he, he puts up with our weakness, uh, he comes down to our level, he kneels and talks to us, and, and he doesn't thunder forth with the thunder and lightning that Adam would come with, right? He is, he is far more kind than strict justice demands. Our God is gracious and and he looks at us in our weak faith and he doesn't condemn us instead he says i will give you more than you need and i will give you more than you deserve now something to keep in mind thomas isn't really convinced by the evidence think of it more like this seeing the evidence wakes thomas from his sleep and makes him realize that god is and always was trustworthy that's what's really happening here because all these other things click into place by the Spirit's work in his own heart. And God, so God uses the evidence in conjunction with the Spirit to change Thomas's heart. Here's how Calvin puts it, and he's commenting on this passage. He says, It was not simply by touching and seeing that Thomas was brought to believe that Christ is God, but by being awakened from sleep, he recalled the teaching which he had almost forgotten. Faith cannot come from the mere experience of things, but must have its origin in the word of God. Um, you know, recalling my own conversion, I've talked about the role that evidence played for me. I read many books that highlighted the evidence for the resurrection. God showed me there were reasons to trust him and his word that I had missed before. 
And on one level, God convinced me by the use of evidence that Jesus had risen from the dead. But the deeper spiritual reality is that God gave me his spirit so that when I saw the evidence, instead of growing harder and more stubborn, my heart was soft and was ready to see what was there and what was already true. And I know that that that's true of, of many of you. In fact, I want to say most of you in this room today. Um, I had friends I presented with the same arguments that persuaded me. I was so excited. I, I told them, and they looked at me like I was a lunatic. The same, same arguments that persuaded me, and they thought I was crazy. You see, I thought they needed arguments. What they really needed was heart change, and that was something I couldn't provide for them. So we must get out of our heads this idea that what we really fundamentally need is just one more piece of evidence some silver bullet that's going to make all the doubts evaporate. The evidence is there. It's solid. It's true. And it's good. But but understand the limits of evidence. Think of the role that willingness plays in your own heart. If someone doesn't love or desire God, then when the evidence is presented, it's just going to become one more item to be explained away. It's not, in fact, really ultimately about the evidence. It's about how our heart is ready to receive the evidence and what we do with that evidence. Um, Blaise Pascal, the Christian philosopher and mathematician, he argued there are plenty of evidence for anyone who honestly seeks God. Listen to what he says. Willing to appear openly to those who seek him with all their heart and to be hidden from those who flee from him with all their heart. God so regulates the knowledge of himself that he has given indications of himself which are visible to those who seek him and not to those who do not seek him. There is enough light for those who see to see who only desire to see and enough obscurity for those who have a contrary disposition. See what he, you see what Pascal is saying. He's saying evidence isn't the real issue. Willingness is the real issue. The, the evidence is adequate. God's word is sufficient. The teaching of Jesus is enough. The eyewitness testimony of the apostles is enough. God has spoken. The evidence is there. It's clear, and it is sound. Some of us are presented with more evidence than others. We, we see things in our lives that others don't see. Perhaps we see prayers answered that others wish they could experience, right? Things in our own lives that we struggle to explain apart from God. Not everyone sees those exact same things. The disciples saw more evidence than Thomas did. And Thomas saw more evidence than we do. And yet Jesus speaks to Thomas, and what does he say? Well, he says something about us. Isn't this amazing that in the moment that this man is doubting him, who does Jesus have on his heart and on his mind? He's thinking about us. He's thinking so far out. He's thinking bigger than this man. He's thinking people are going to have to believe that with less than Thomas has in front of him right now. He's thinking about you and me and how different it's going to be for us than it is for this man in front of him. And he says, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Thomas, you are not the last believer who will ever live. More are coming oceans and oceans of followers of Christ, more than you could ever count, 
a, a world of men and women and boys and girls who will hear your words and they will hear this testimony and they will believe with less evidence in hand than you and they will be blessed. And that is why those who believe without seeing are blessed because belief requires faith, which is a gift that comes from God. If you believe without seeing Jesus, you do so because you are blessed. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we know that our faith is not what it should be. And our faith is not what it could be. With the Father in Mark's gospel, we often find ourselves crying out, we believe, help our unbelief. And we yearn for that. We yearn to have our faith increased, to be ready to share a reason for the hope within us, to grow in our knowledge of the reasons that we do have to believe in Christ and rejoice in hope. Would you fill us with a sense of the truth of your word today, a joy in the knowledge of your risen Son and hearts that are anchored on your sure and certain word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.